Welcome to We Go There. I'm Lexi. And I'm Nikki. And our favorite conversations are when someone starts by saying, this might be TMI, but... But hey, we go there. Because there's no such thing as having too much information when it comes to your health and wellness. We dive deep into topics, interview experts, and get answers you need. Because knowledge is power. And feeling empowered is what we're all about. So let's go there. I am here with Dr. Rebecca Greenberg. She's a nurse and a bioethicist. And so we're going to get dive into what that actually means. But she has her bachelor's of science in nursing and a PhD in postdoctoral fellowship in biomedical ethics from the University of Toronto. And she helps essentially people make really big heavy health decisions and help them navigate through the overwhelm and just all the stuff that comes with that. So first of all, thank you so much for being here. This is going to be a really powerful, I think, conversation today. It's a pleasure. I'm really excited. And I love the podcast. I'm an avid listener and talking about difficult taboo subjects is my jam. That's where I'm most comfortable. So this should be fun. Oh, well, it will be powerful. I can, I can, and potentially, potentially fun, fun for us, you know, but, but anyone listening to this who is currently doing, going through the, the work of trying to make a big decision, probably not so fun for them, but, um, acknowledging that right now. Um, so what, maybe we'll just start with the basics. What is a bioethicist? It's a great question. So we are a rare breed and essentially a bioethicist is someone who helps individuals make ethical decisions about health. And that can take shape in a few ways. So that can be working with patients and their loved ones or their families who are making a decision. And in the hospital or healthcare setting, that can also be working with healthcare teams, deciding where their limits are professionally and ethically. And sometimes even when there's conflict between the healthcare team and the patient and their family, a bioethicist is there to help decision makers come together and find a path forward. So really, we focus on moral or ethical dilemmas in the healthcare space and helping those who are involved in making decisions figure out what is the best way forward for them in their individual circumstance. So I've got two questions. First of all, can you give me a few examples of the kinds of decisions just for for context for everybody? So we'll start with part one. And part two is really your story of how you got into this. Okay, for sure. So it really spans the gamut. I would say there's sort of two buckets of decision-making that we help people with. So the first is decision-making on behalf of oneself. So if one has a medical decision to make like... um, Do I want to try a fourth round of chemo when the chances aren't great? Do I want to have a second lung transplant? Um, Do I want to continue with fertility treatments? Do I want to pursue an abortion? So all kinds of questions about oneself. And then the second bucket is around making decisions on behalf of someone else, which we see most commonly in the role of parents. So decisions on behalf of a child and a child that often has chronic uh, complex illness or decisions on the other end of the spectrum on behalf of elderly 
parents. And that can be complicated because often there's a multitude of decision makers. So grown siblings together making a decision on behalf of, let's say, um, a elderly parent who is in an intensive care setting, you know, not able to speak on behalf of themselves or who has a cognitive impairment like dementia, questions around quality of life. Mm -hmm. So really, really spans the spectrum. Yeah, no kidding. And and so how does one decide that they want to get into, you know, I mean, this isn't relaxing work. Like you are definitely, it sounds like helping people who feel they're in some aspect of crisis to some extent. Yeah. So I would start off by saying it's a privilege to be able to work with people in some of the most difficult times that they've ever faced. It really is. Um, and I have always known that I wanted to work in healthcare and that I had an interest in helping people. And it was through my experience as a frontline nurse that I really resonated to me that what was most challenging in my job was not the nights and the long hours, which is what I thought it would be, but was what was sitting with me at the end of the shift that lingered about the patients where I struggled or where I saw them struggling or the team struggling. And uh, I was introduced to the field of ethics and it was just a great fit. That's amazing. So, I mean, do you have a story? Was there any moment like that really made you realize I have to get into this? There was a moment where I was looking at after a woman with a young family who had breast cancer and she had exhausted every option and ultimately had decided to transition her care from treatment to palliative care. And we had many late night conversations about how she as a woman could identify as being a fighter and being strong, and being a mother, and also decide that it was the time to move towards comfort. Mm. Uh, Unbelievably heart-wrenching to be involved in those conversations with her. And at the time, as a nurse, I felt somewhat ill-equipped to be able to support her through that journey. And there were many of these kinds of conversations that I would have, and I would see clinicians struggle with themselves. And I thought, I want to know more. This is, this is the hard stuff. And, um, if there's opportunity to impact people in a positive way in these difficult moments, then I wanted to sort of bolster my skills. And so then I ended up going back to school. Wow. And how long was that program? You got your PhD in this. Yeah. So, uh, the PhD took about four years and then I did a year, uh, fellowship where, We were rotating through hospitals and learning about what we would call clinical ethics. So on the ground, hospital setting. And I spent about a decade at the Hospital for Sick Children. And then I led the ethics program at Sinai Health. And through that time, uh, really focused in on pediatrics and women's and infants issues. I mean, this is... This is powerful stuff. I'll share a silly... It feels silly considering the the magnitude of some of the stuff that I know you and your colleagues deal with. But recently I had to make the decision to get my daughter's some dental dental work done, like a tongue tie and the cavities. And we had to put her under general. And I remember thinking like, I'm like the risks, like just 
you know, feeling like, like my husband and I were both crying after because it felt like we just gassed yes. our kid. Like we saw it happen and just yes. watching her little four-year-old body go limp. I was like, I, I still get shivers thinking about it. And I can only imagine, I mean, that was for an optional, I mean, we, we had to get her cavities filled, but like it was relatively, you know, it's so benign, like totally fine, not any type of chronic illness, but just, just an gave me a slight inkling of what, you know, other medically complex parents may have to go through. And it's just heart-wrenching. Yeah. And often I think it's a topic that people don't feel comfortable talking about how they make these decisions because there's a complexity of emotion. So you shared the story where you were in tears and you felt horrible. And you can imagine how parents in particular, when we're making decisions on behalf of children, feel so torn that they don't feel a safe place or an outlet to be able to talk about and process that. Um, and many of these decisions are so difficult that the feelings we have are negative. And so we often, or one often will assume, if I feel horrible about this, mm -hmm. then I'm doing the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. Or maybe I miss something. Um, and it's really, you know, interesting to think about what is the role of our emotions in these complicated decisions and how do we get support to manage those and are they or are they not a guide in ultimately making a decision to move forward or not yeah it, the guilt and the weight of responsibility you know like making a decision for somebody who it's her body and we're making a decision about it period yes 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 so it's interesting just to take a moment to reflect on the emotional response, right? Mm -hmm. So I would say in day-to-day -day life outside of the medical setting, when we feel uncomfortable or sad or guilty, it's usually our internal barometer to say we're, we're doing something wrong, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't feel good to lie. It doesn't feel good to make a transgression. And so that's sort of our internal compass saying, don't do it. Mm -hmm. But in these complicated spaces, I think we need to ask, what would it mean to be comfortable? Mm -hmm. What would it mean to watch your child be put under, to have procedure done to your child and not be phased by it? Mm -hmm. And so we, I often caution people to say, if you feel uncomfortable, don't necessarily conflate that with wrongdoing. Mm -hmm. What is the narrative behind your discomfort? Is it that you care? Is it that you love yourself or your child, whoever it is that we're, we're talking about? And perhaps the goal is actually to lean into the discomfort mm -hmm. and to, to see what is that telling us and how do we move through the discomfort as opposed to saying, mm, I should automatically go to guilt. I should automatically feel bad. Oh man, this is powerful stuff because it's true. What's the intention, I suppose? Where's mm -hmm. it coming from? Right. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. I also shared with you that I went through IVF and we ended up having five embryos. So basically, you know, and then we decided to get the PGS testing, pre-genetic screening testing done. Yes. Um, and of the five embryos, two came back chromosomally okay. And the other three would we were told would not have been viable. They would have miscarried. They would have just not implanted, whatever. So we had two quote unquote normal, that's the terminology they use in the clinic, embryos. And 
we were incredibly fortunate because both of the embryos took, and those are our two children. But I am often thinking about friends of mine who had, you know, 10 embryos and they don't want 10 kids and they were all, you know, on ice, essentially tested embryos, what to do with those embryos. So I don't thank goodness have that. I feel grateful. I don't have that problem, like that, that decision Mm -hmm. to make. I'm not paying for my DNA to be frozen. Um, We only had two, but like, I know it has, I've spoken to people, it weighs on them heavily when they've got like these frozen M babies, so to speak in the freezer. What do you do? Do you donate them? Do you, you know? Yes. It's a huge topic and there's so many different ways that that scenario can go. And um, it can get even more complicated when uh, one member of, if it's a couple that is trying to conceive versus a single individual, if the couple, if the relationship doesn't stand the test of the time, if somebody passes away, there's so many combinations and permutations that get complicated. I think the main thing that we've learned in the field with respect to freezing embryos is to talk about it before you do it. Mm-hmm. I think once you get on to trying to have a family through fertility treatments, the goal is to have that baby or babies, which is a wonderful thing to do. And it almost is secondary to think about, well, what about the other pieces? And I think that when someone finds themselves in that situation, then they're struck with, oh my gosh, this is actually incredibly weighty. And I didn't really have the opportunity to digest and think about what are my options? And is it morally okay for me, depending on my personal views or my religious views, to dispose of an embryo, to donate it to science, to donate it to another couple that isn't able to uh, have an embryo with their own biological material. So I think that really the lesson here is to make these kind of uncomfortable topics more commonplace and to talk about them early so that we're best equipped before we have those embryos to think Mm -hmm. about what are we going to do? We had to sign something before and it was like, who has ultimate rights over what to do with the embryo? And it ended up being that I did. And like, and I remember like later being like, man, that would have been like, I didn't even really understand what I was signing, to be honest. Yeah. And my husband was like, at the time he was like, yeah, sure. Just whatever, you know, <laughs> just, I don't want to be signing <laughs> any more paperwork. And then I was right. like, oh my gosh, like, you know, we could split and I could just decide to have another child that's your, you know, DNA, but you can't do anything about it. Like, it's just so wild when some of this, I'm sure those situations have happened. Yes, for sure. I guess more complicated, we talk about third parties. So if you have a sperm donor or an egg donor or an embryo donor, Mm -hmm. all of these things become um, much more important to think about. And there's been a a welcome shift, I think, in the field where the clinics are requiring what would be called implications counseling to really talk about these things in advance so that people can feel as comfortable as one can be in making complicated, uncomfortable decisions. Yeah. So that's the lesson. Talk about it before and like also probably get guidance because you don't, if you haven't lived it, you don't really know what topics, you don't even know what possible complications could arise, right? Yeah, exactly. This episode of the We Go There podcast is brought to you by The Bell Method, a fitness company that blends Pilates with pelvic health, creating choreography from science. 
You might feel overwhelmed at all the abs after baby programs promising to make you bounce back after birth. Or maybe you're feeling unsure of how to exercise in pregnancy and prepare your body for delivery. It can be tough to navigate what information is credible and evidence-based. Women deserve better. I created all of our programs with the guidance of pelvic health physiotherapists, and we continue to evolve our programming to stay current with the latest research. At The Bell Method, we ditch guilt and bring balance to our bodies with programs designed to fit your life stage. We'll help you reduce incontinence, diastasis recti, and prolapse so you feel strong, confident, and empowered throughout pregnancy, postpartum, and beyond. I invite you to enjoy 10% off your first class session with the code WEGOTHERE10. Visit www.thebellmethod.com for more. And there's not a one uh, a one size fits all answer to this. It's so personal, and it really depends on values for the individual and the couples involved. So, is that something that you try to pull out when you're like their values? Like, how what are what would be some of the questions you would ask somebody to help really get them to? Because they're the ones that have to make the decision. How do you help them? What what do you get them to think about? Yeah. So when I meet with clients of mine, with patients of mine, there's often this overwhelming and understandably so feeling of, I have to make a medical decision. It's this or it's that. What do I do? And of course, that is the big question at hand. But working with me, I often say, let's slow it down and take a step back and talk about the first thing to do is actually not to answer that question. It's to figure out what are your goals, broadly speaking. What are your values? What are your wishes? And getting clarity on that and then mapping that on to the available options. We can get tunnel vision when we try to answer a medical question. Should I do this or should I do that? Well, that's a very hard thing to answer without figuring out, well, what matters to me? Mm-hmm. And it's a little bit more complicated than that. It's not just what matters to me. But what is most important to me? In many of these decisions, we will have to make a compromise. We will have to feel that there are pros and cons on either end. And so we work together to figure out, so is there a trump card? Is there one goal or one value that is most important to you? Is it quality of life? Is it quantity of life? Is it having a family at any cost? Well, what are those costs? Where does religion and culture fit into this? And I think the other thing that is important to get clear about is what matters to you as an individual and what are the other pieces that are affecting your decision? What I mean by that is who else is at that decision-making table? What is their role at the table? And I think for women also taking the space to think about what are those normative cultural ideologies that are out there that maybe are impacting you that you might not even be aware that they're filtering in? What are those messages out there in the culture that we're saying, "Mm, I'm doing this because I'm on this path. Is it really what I want to do? And making space to talk about that. I mean, I feel like everything you just said could be applied to life in general, not just medical decisions, you know, but every like hard decisions in general. So this is like, I'm just hearing like getting out of the tunnel vision and and really zooming out and thinking values, goals, wishes. And then I love that you said that. And then kind of tacking that on to like, well, these are our 
present options. Like how could we try our best to honor those goals and wishes? Another one that is sort of a topic that we have never covered here on the podcast, and that's pregnancy termination and abortion, because it is so political. It is so heavy. It is so loaded. And I can't think of a better person to speak to about this than someone like yourself, who is just so knowledgeable and educated around these types of decisions. I was recently um, interviewing a student of mine who had a very traumatic uh, first pregnancy birth and then ended up a metabolic condition with her daughter, ended up getting a very severe pelvic infection, was on a pick line for six weeks herself, like moving, sibling tried to commit suicide, like all the things happened around, you know, both to her, to her baby, to her family. She moved like all the stuff in the middle of this and then unexpectedly conceived like six months later, right after the pick line was removed, she got pregnant. And I remember her saying to me almost shamefully, like, we almost terminated this pregnancy because I just was so unsure if I could physically handle it, you know, like the metabolic condition, the chances of that happening again. And she decided she she ended up having the baby. She's doing, doing, you know, fine. She's doing good. Um, but it was like, and it was so hard. I mean, even me listening, I said, you know what, like we can talk about this as much or as little as you want to. And, and she, we ended up changing the sort of stream of the conversation, but this is something that I can imagine that the people you work with really struggle with. She knew there was a probability that her child would have this similar medical condition. And so, you know, how do you help somebody going through these emotions and, and really questioning around around the their capacity to even support their child if their child's going to be born with a more, you know, specific, I'm not sure if the right word is disability or impairment or I'm not sure if that's correct. Please correct me if I'm saying this, if it's saying this wrong. So this topic is... Uh a topic that I think is really important to talk about because so many women struggle silently in making these decisions. They're incredibly weighty and they really, I think, pull on one's individual conceptions of their identity and what does it mean to be a good person uh, and can be, and I think you've touched on this already in your example, there's another layer of complexity for individuals who are struggling with fertility and situations arise and then it feels at odds with being on that journey. And so one way that I start with these kinds of decisions is to make space for the difficulty that we spoke about this just a few minutes ago about what is the role of our emotions. But in a situation like this, I think to set expectations that This is not a situation where one's going to feel good or even comfortable, if you will. It's how can you get clarity that on balance, this is the right decision for you at this point in time. And I like to use the word of moral peace. So I ask people, the goal is to say, let's figure out what the decision is today. And when you reflect back on that, in three days, in three years, in 30 years, you're not necessarily going to feel good about that decision, but can you feel confident that you made the best choice possible? 
what is that conversation that you're going to have in your own head when it comes back? Because it almost certainly will, that you will be able to say, I thought about it. I embraced my discomfort. I took my time and this was horrible. And I, and yet I know that this was the way forward in either direction Mm -hmm. to interrupt a pregnancy or to continue forward. Um, And so again, it's that you'll see this theme of making space for the discomfort Mm -hmm. and allowing us to really figure out what is the narrative to our emotional response and also to make space that we may have competing goals. Mm -hmm. So let me be a little bit more clear about that. Individuals who are striving to grow their family and faced with the question to terminate a pregnancy or not are often paralyzed by saying, I can't terminate a pregnancy if I want to have a child. Mm -hmm. Is it possible that both can be true? Is it possible that one could very much so want to have a family, want to grow a family, and that there may be a specific circumstance and you know, you've alluded to one where there's genetic abnormalities or that the pregnancy will not ultimately be viable, where it is reasonable for that individual to make that decision and to be able to make space for that dichotomy. Mm -hmm. Individuals like, and understandably so, to have um, one view, everything fits harmoniously. When things don't cohere, we feel like that that's somehow problematic. And I would say, well, the messy bits is just life, right? We have to allow for that and to say two things can be true and they don't necessarily detract. So if A is true and B is true, it doesn't take away. So you can make a hard decision. You can feel bad and you can be a good person. You can have integrity. Lexi here. Okay. So let's shift to another under the radar, not so hot topic for a minute, body hair. Everyone's got it, but a lot of us want to live smoother. Am I right? 10 years ago, I started Wax On Laser and Wax Bar. Wax On isn't just any waxing and laser hair removal bar. We are the industry leader creating a safe space that inspires people to live confidently in their own skin. Over the years, we've developed trust. Trust that you know you're getting the best quality and comfortable experience every single time. Whatever you come to Wax On for, it's going to be awesome. We've created our own exclusive gold wax formula that's like no other. It's as pain-free and long-lasting as it gets, perfect for all your waxing needs. At WaxOn, we've invested in top-of-the-line laser technology that's effective on virtually any hair and skin tone for effective results on every body. Seriously. And we carry a carefully curated collection of products. Some we make ourselves, locally I might add, and some are from brands we've fallen in love with that adhere to our values and standards of clean, good for you, and female founded. If you haven't experienced Wax On, I invite you to enjoy 20% off your first service with code WEGOTHERE. Visit waxon.ca or download the mobile app to book in with code WEGOTHERE because there is such a thing as a better hair removal experience to help you live smoother. So much push-pull happening, huh? Like Mm. just feeling at odds, I imagine. Um, I'm curious to know, and this is, we're both in Canada, so that has to be acknowledged. We have a lot of listeners outside of Canada. So these are decisions that are not even available to people, especially in the U.S. So what's, has that, like, has that impacted any 
of your work. I don't imagine it would have, but I'm just curious to know if that's even a relevant point to make right now. So it has not, uh, because the nature of my patient population is that I work with in Canada and in Canada, it is still uh, legal. It is not something that I have dealt with with individual patients, but it's definitely been part of the discourse uh, in Canada about thinking about uh, how is that relevant given that we share a border? What does that mean for practitioners here? Uh, and and interestingly, you know, we're, our conversations focused on termination of pregnancy, which is a huge topic, especially now as we've seen the climate shift nationally. There's other interesting discourses happening simultaneously around the ethics of um, allowing women who don't want to have children to have uh, what we essentially, let's just say, uh, an accessible terminology, have their tubes tied. So what does it mean for a woman who's young and doesn't have children um, and knows that they don't want to have children to have a permanent irreversible surgery to do that? And those kinds of conversations have become interestingly more charged now in the backdrop of this international shift, particularly in the U.S., um, you know, around women's rights. So it's kind of across the spectrum. We see these issues popping up. Oh, if someone changes their mind, basically, you know, they're, they're 18 and then they're 35 and they go, why did I do that? Is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah, there's, there's, I think a lot of the, there, there's discourse around a reluctance to honor women's choices, to decide to permanently, um, take choices to prevent having children or to be able to conceive. Man, what's it like at a dinner party with you? (laughs) How much do you talk about this outside of work? I'm serious. It's very, I mean, <laughs> well, I wouldn't be, uh, I, I enjoy many things. I often joke that I, you know, when the day's over, I put that aside yeah. and uh, <laughs> try to talk about lighter things, but it definitely gives perspective, you know, yeah. um, to be able to think about such rich and important topics, I think allows me to delve into the lighter stuff a little bit more easily because I realize how important it is. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. This is, uh, I mean, I'm noticing a theme, um, essentially, and you've meant you've you've already articulated it so well. Just getting getting more comfortable with the discomfort and not necessarily conflating that with you're doing something wrong, like the feeling, the negative emotions, to, to almost expect them, right, yeah. and not not go, oh my god, this feels so wrong. It must be wrong. I don't know. It's yeah, that one is landing for me for sure. Um, there's so on much- that note. Yeah. One of the things that I see in my practice a lot is when multiple decision makers are experiencing conflict. So another le- another layer of discomfort. Mm-hmm. So when it's an individual making a decision on behalf of themselves, that's hard. But you can think about parents who perhaps are not in alignment about their child. Or as we started earlier about making decisions on behalf of elderly parents very commonplace and what to do with that conflict or that discomfort. And I think there's often a false expectation that everyone's going to be on the same page from the beginning. And as soon as there's diverging views, then people get really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So it's another opportunity to say, well, how can we unite in this? How can we weather this as a family? It's a difficult time in and of itself to make this decision. And how can we keep cohesion? 
And how can we focus on what are our united goals together in this journey? So would you sit down, for example, with a family, say there's maybe three three siblings dealing with aging parents. Would you sit down with them and, and facilitate that conversation? Yes. Okay. Yes. Interestingly, many people I find are unaware that in Canada, there's actually a legal framework for making decisions in the healthcare setting on behalf of others. It certainly doesn't provide clarity, but it helps frame the conversation in that a lot of the conflict stems from, in my experience, individuals feeling that it's a battle of what they believe is best for their loved one, but the law actually narrows that. And although the legislation is slightly different across the provinces and territories, essentially it's united in the concept that decision makers are given a responsibility to make a decision on behalf of someone else based on what that individual who's not able to speak for themselves would want. Mm -hmm. So it's a very different lens than saying, here's what I think is best for my mom Mm -hmm. and my sister or my brother feels differently. It's what would mom want? if she could speak for herself today. And even just getting clarity on how to make the decision reduces conflict because it narrows the scope Mm -hmm. and it finds a united purpose in that conversation. Mm -hmm. And it can become less personal as opposed to your view versus my view on quality of life. But we're here to actually do right by our loved one. What does that look like? Yeah, that's a powerful shift to say, what would mom want? This isn't about you. This isn't about what you think is best or what he thinks is best. This is about what that your mom would want, for example. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Oh, and this is, this is, I imagine, given our, you know, the aging population of baby boomers, like you see this the most, like what do you, in your practice, what kinds of um, clients or patients are you dealing with the most? I would say, I would say two spectrums of life the shared commonality is substitute decision making so making decision on behalf of a child or with a child or making a decision on behalf of an elderly parent mm-hmm. working with parents who are making decisions with or on behalf of children is another layer of complexity so for example um I recently had a family where they were trying to make a decision with their nine-year-old daughter whether or not to pursue growth hormone replacement due to projected short stature. So how do they come together to decide, is this right for our family? Is this right for our daughter? What is the role of a young child in this decision-making journey? So I would say cross the board, making decisions on behalf of others. And then a large part of my practice is women's health and questions around family planning, fertility uh, would be would be the other large bucket. Okay. Yeah. I know you're not at liberty to share the details of all of these stories, but I am curious, like how would you, like at what age do you start to involve the child more? right? Like a nine-year-old is different from a four-year-old, right? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And a nine-year-old who has had multiple interactions with the healthcare system and knows the healthcare system, unfortunately, because they've been, had struggled with health challenges is very different than the, another kind of nine-year-old. 
So a couple things, many things to say about that. So since we're both in Ontario, it's worth flagging that interestingly, unlike some of our other provinces, there is actually no age of consent in Ontario, meaning that it is is determined based on the individual's child's ability to make that decision. Oh, wow. That's subjective, right? It is so subjective. And Ontario is recognized internationally for one of the most nuanced healthcare legislation that allows that. And so there were some interesting papers that came out about five years ago um, in neuroscience that showed that children on, on average at the age of 12 have the same decision-making capacity as an adult to make decisions on behalf of themselves, which I think for many people who don't work in the field would seem extremely yes. unsurprising. Like I hear stories extremely of like your brain's not even made by 25 or something. We hear that, exactly. right? Exactly. The brain continues to develop into the mid-20s. And um, with the, I mean, we could have a whole chat about the neuroscience behind this and why adolescents can make what we might say are irrational social decisions, but mm-hmm. yet have the faculty to make sound decision-making um, in the healthcare context. It's super complicated and super fascinating. But I think what you know is interesting to note is it's titrated to the individual child and the individual circumstance. So it's not a one decision decision is the child capable or not what is the decision where are they at at this point in time and continuing to reevaluate it and often i find that children want to make those decisions with their parents even if they're legally capable everybody wants to do it together mm-hmm. and the the conversation often shifts to how do we honor the voices and how do we support our child as they age through life to be able to make decisions. So as young as a little little tiny toddler, it's, do you want this Band-Aid or that Band-Aid? Mm-hmm. Do you want the chewable Tylenol or the liquid Tylenol? Mm-hmm. How do we build capacity in our children to make decisions mm-hmm. and shepherd them through life so that when they are in the adult system, and again, there is no age of consent in Ontario, but they're treated very differently in the adult system. How have we reared and instilled that with them to be able to feel confident in grappling with difficult health choices that one might have to make. So give your kids choice about band-aids. Give your kids a choice. <laughs> breakfast cereal. And like what, what else? <laughs> about almost anything. Uh, really. Where will you and go pick your underwear? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have some opinionated toddlers here for sure. Oh, wow. Yes. Yes. That's that's interesting about the age of consent. That that is um where like just for context, what is it like in in a lot of other places? So there's a handful of provinces where it's 18. Um and it, prior to that, you can't make a decision on behalf of yourself. And so Ontario is considered to be very nuanced. Um and it's not a light switch, right? And mm-hmm. so it's not like at 18 all of a sudden somebody has the capacity. And what's nice about the legislation here is, again, it's titrated, so it's decision-specific. So a child may be able to make a decision about the kind of pain medication they want. Do they want an IV or do they want to have an injection, but not be able to make a decision about whether or not they should have surgery. 
Right. So it's really looking at the individual circumstances at that time. And that's true across the life spectrum, especially as we see people age mm-hmm. and with the elderly. So again, similar kinds of themes here, maybe able to make some decisions and perhaps not others. And mm-hmm. so the theme is often, how do we find that voice? And even if the individual is not capable, how do we honor that? How do we make them feel valued? Mm-hmm. Oh. Where are we at now um, with the, do we feel, do people still say euthanasia or no? What do we say now? What do we call it? So in Canada, we talk about medical assistance in dying. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Um, and so we don't, what, is that, is that a bad word to say now? Like, is that politically incorrect? I don't think it's politically incorrect. I think it's just very different when you think about the goals and objectives of okay. euthanizing, meaning the purpose that, that there's a, usually a, a physician or a clinician that is acting to end somebody's life. Right. where medical assistance in dying is a bit more discreet and nuanced around there is someone who has intractable suffering and, uh, you know, life is in most situations uh, limited. And how can we support that person through um, a dying process that they want? And interestingly, there's not a lot of discourse around this publicly, but there are opportunities that individuals can actually pursue medical assistance in dying where it's not a physician that uh, injects them, but they can actually take a pill themselves. Happens exceedingly rare, but it can happen um, versus euthanasia where it's all directed to the individual. So there's a lot of nuances about this. Okay. Um, Do you deal with that as well? Yes. Um, So medical assistance in dying, I think is a, I mean, we need multiple podcasts on this topic. I think some of the big questions is even for physicians to figure out where are they comfortable with? Yeah. And it is not something that is a requirement of physicians to provide. Mm -hmm. There are physicians who for their uh, legitimate reasons are not comfortable participating in that, but working with healthcare professionals to figure out where are they on the spectrum. And again, it can, it can fluctuate. There may be a certain category of cases where they're comfortable and they're not comfortable. And then also working with individuals to figure out for patients specifically, is this something that they want? Mm-hmm. What does this mean for them? Is this a pathway that they would like to pursue? And also helping them explain that to their loved ones. Uh, sadly, I've seen a number of situations where making that decision can be very divisive in a family and it can be very difficult for people to get on board with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so helping a family unite in that immensely difficult time to be able to ultimately come full circle and support each other. And most importantly, support the individual who wants to pursue that. Mm-hmm. What, I mean, how, I feel like the way you present information is just so balanced and and thoughtful. And I feel like this is something that we could all learn just in our own lives because we have to make decisions in our day-to-day lives about our families all the time. And inevitably there will be conflict, you know, and I'm talking much like not medical heavy decisions. I'm just talking about life in general, right? Yeah. But what are some of the things that you think 
anyone listening to this could like pull from this. Like I'm basically asking you, like, what are some of the qualities or skills that people might be able to foster in themselves to sort of have the ability to make difficult decisions with less conflict and less strife, if you will? It's a great question. So lean into that conflict, lean into that conflict because it is, I believe, and I've seen this in my practice, it actually minimizes decisional regret. What I mean by that is how does one make a good decision? Maybe we should take it a step back here and say, that's ultimately the goal. What does a good decision look like? And I would say a good decision is characterized by due process, not a quick, hasty decision. We're talking in particular about weighty, big life decisions. And so what does a thorough process look like? A thorough process looks like taking that eagle eye view, that view if you were 30,000 feet above, and looking at everything, things that maybe you don't necessarily like or you don't necessarily agree with. And if you take time to think about gathering facts, gathering perspectives, gathering diverse perspectives, that at the end of the day, when you make that decision, you can look back and say, I don't have regret because I thought about it all. I was open to thinking about things in a different way. And I have, as we talked about a little bit earlier, that concept of moral peace that I thought about this. So I think we I think the the key takeaway here is what are the expectations in making difficult decisions? And to expect not to have discourse or conflict or uncertainty is, I think, an unrealistic expectation. And to use that as information to allow us to get clarity on, well, what does it really matter? What really matters to us? Another thing to share with respect to conflict, and I, I see this in relationships of all sorts is we often as humans want others to do things for the same reason that we're doing it. And a lot of the conflict comes from, well, you're not saying what I'm saying and you don't value what I'm valuing or you don't agree with me here. And we kind of go down the sidetrack of hashing out the individual sort of nuances of a decision And how do we reduce the conflict? We come back to what are our goals? Mm. Is it to be good parents? Is it to be, to do right by my mom? What is our goal? And then what does that look like? And maybe my reasons for doing it might be different than my partner's. And that's okay. And when we feel that our reasons are different or thinking is different, can we find united? Can we find uh, collaboration in the shared vision and the shared goal, and then we'll operationalize that together. Don't get sidetracked with the nitty gritty. Focus back on your goals, and I love that. Like, like we both want to be good parents here, so we may disagree about certain aspects of our process, perhaps, or yes, right. But yes. at the end of the day, we want the same things, and it's it's hard to hold anger for someone that is shared in that vision. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You can have, it's easier to have compassion and solidarity Mm -hmm. as opposed to anger and frustration, although that's part of it as well. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. I can, this is all so, so rich as I knew this conversation would be. Oh my goodness. (laughs) So you are 
like, are you somebody who works for the hospital or are you, do you have your own consulting firm? Like, how does this work? (laughs) So, um, Historically, I was embedded in the hospital setting in academic hospitals in Toronto. Uh, I have since uh, left the hospital sector and now have my own consulting firm where I provide services to both patients who are looking for support to make their decisions and also healthcare institutions that are looking for support in making more organizational level, policy level decisions about ethical issues and the provision of health. Questions about resource allocation, um, priority setting. You can think about so many things that came through during COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, So, uh, yes, uh, I'm an independent practice and have a consulting firm that specializes essentially on ethical decisions across the healthcare space. Oh, that's amazing. So necessary. And it's one of those things I think people don't realize is necessary until they need it. And they go, oh my God, <laughs> we need we need this help, right? Yes, yes. And I think what's unique about working with a bioethicist is that we're focused on making that decision. So people often ask, so what's the difference of working with you than let's say a social worker or a psychologist, which are more focused around therapeutic approaches and long-term relationships, a bioethicist is a time-limited intervention. So one to three sessions on helping you essentially analyze your situation and get clarity and confidence around what is the path forward? Why is that path forward the right thing for you in your individual circumstances? It's very discreet. Mm. Uh, It's not something necessarily that can run the test of time. Although on occasion we're dealing with chronic health issues, there may be clients or patients that I follow over time, but more commonly it's very specific to an individual decision. Okay. Well, please tell everybody where they can find you. And if you have any more resources, we'll be sure to put them down in the show notes so people can access that or blogs or anything you think might be helpful reading for anybody. Thanks so much for the opportunity, Nikki. It's been a pleasure. Yes. And tell us where they can find you. (laughs) Okay. So my website is greenbergconsulting.ca. Amazing. Thank you so much. We really appreciate your time today. And thank you for helping us broach some of these really, really hard topics with such balanced uh, viewpoints and, and just intention and articulation and just grace. So thank you. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for our next episode. And in the meantime, follow us on Instagram at WeGoTherePodcast and check out WeGoTherePodcast.com for more info.